I think the passage this morning, which is 1 Samuel 10, that's where we will be, not all of 10, but most of it, answers an important question for us. So here it is. Can God use someone in dynamic, powerful ways for God's own kingdom purposes who is not saved? That is, can both of these things be true at the same time? A, God is using someone in an obvious, we can even say in miraculous ways. And also B, that person is not a person of true faith. We understand that we can often see moral qualities in unbelievers, right? You, you know unbelievers in your life, and sometimes they behave better than Christians in your life. We're not talking about whether they can be moral. Everyone's created in God's image, and they do nice things for people. What about things that seem pretty specific to church, like clear, powerful, spiritual gifting, for example? There are some external signs that assure us a person is obviously saved. They're being used mightily for God, and maybe they are, but are they saved? So what I don't want you to hear me asking this morning is, maybe God isn't using them in mighty ways, that it's all a sham. I'm saying maybe sometimes God is genuinely using somebody in mighty ways, and they do mighty things, and it's very flashy, but that, does, that, does that mean they're believers? So today we're going to see an account in 1 Samuel 10. We're going to see a 3,000-year-old event. This one scene in the life of Saul as he was anointed to be the first king of Israel. And in this scene, I think we get insight into that question. So I want to give you a quick overview of the text because it's, it's thick. It, there's a lot of moves in it. And so I want to give you kind of an overview. If you're taking notes, here's sort of the outline of the passage, okay? And uh, we're, we're going through most of 1 Samuel 10 today. So here's four pieces to this scene, all right? Many scenes within this scene. Four pieces to this scene that we're looking at today. The first piece, Samuel, the prophet, the man of God, tells Saul the purpose of his being anointed king, that God is doing this, he's anointing you king. That's the first piece. The second piece is Samuel, the man of God, gives Saul, the now anointed king, signs that will prove that this is the Lord's doing. I'm going to give you signs, miraculous signs. Without a doubt, this is God doing this. That's the second piece. The third piece, Saul does not live up to standards of faith and courage. You wouldn't think God would do those first two things with this third piece. And then the fourth piece is that God uses him anyway to do what God wants to accomplish for Israel. I'm going to repeat those in a couple minutes, but let me just help you understand what I'm doing here. I want you to see how that third piece doesn't seem to fit. God is doing this. God is doing this through this person. He's going to do amazing things through this person. And then the text whispers basically, but he's not, he's not a good dude. And then the text goes back to the story, goes back to God using him anyway. So how can someone who was chosen by God, anointed by God, used to accomplish great things for God, also at the same time be a person who's truly not a believer and not truly a faithful, regenerate person, all right? There's our word for the day, boys and girls, regenerate, all right? So let me, a quick sidebar just to help us out before we dive in, because I'm going to keep using that word. And you might be wondering if, first of all, are there any regenerate people in the Old Testament at all? 
Isn't regeneration a New Testament thing? And the other thing you might be wondering more basically is, what in the world is this word regenerate? Well, you may have heard some people say that somebody is um, uh, degenerate. That's not a compliment. All right, so let, let me start with the second one in the back up. What is regeneration? Real quickly, it's a term used to refer to what Jesus taught in John 3 when he answered Nicodemus, uh, telling Nicodemus that you must be born again, a regenesis, a new beginning, like a generator starts electricity, right? It's generation is a beginning. Or when we say my kid's generation doesn't know anything about this, you're saying this new crop of people, right? It's a new birth. It's a new thing. So regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit when someone is rebirthed. They're born again spiritually. Okay, they, they've become a new creation. That's what I mean when I say, is someone regenerate? Are they a believer? Are they saved? Are they truly Christian? Is it true faith? That's what I mean. Second, to the question, isn't new regeneration a New Testament thing? I don't think so. We understand it better in the New Testament. It's offered more clearly and more widely in the New Testament. But it must have been happening in the Old Testament because how else did anyone in the Old Testament get saved? So we don't believe that everyone in the Old Testament got saved because they kept the law so well, and then everyone in the New Testament, they just got to be born again. Nobody kept the law perfectly. Everybody's righteous offerings were as filthy rags before the Lord. So Paul argues it was always by faith, and you can look this up later, but Genesis 15, 6, Genesis 15, 6 is where God says Abraham believed God about his promise about the coming son. Abraham believed God, that's faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness, right? So jot down Genesis 15, 6. And then next to that, you can look it up later, what Paul does with that in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Okay? Just so you can nerd out a little bit later and, and understand what we mean by regeneration, even in the Old Testament. Of course they had to. It had to be by faith. Okay, so there's a lot I can unpack there, but I just want to make that clear when I use the word regenerate. Now, in 1 Samuel 10, back to our story. You're going to feel this tension. Saul is not great stuff. We saw that last week. He doesn't seem like a believer. He doesn't seem like a faithful person. Yet at the same time, God uses him, empowers him to accomplish things that seem, on the surface at least, like those kinds of things belong to believers, regenerate people, save people. Does that seem like a dilemma to you? Because it does to me. In a few minutes, we're going to walk through that narrative that scene with those four pieces. We're going to try to see if this is a real issue in the text and not just in my mind, but how is this relevant? I mean, I've posed you a theological question, but who cares? Well, I think it's crucial. I already began with this one. Um, I hinted at it at least, but if you see someone who ministers for God in powerful ways, is that person necessarily saved are you certain they're a believer? When somebody asks you, do you about your own life, are you a believer? Are you sure you're a believer? Do we find ourselves pointing to miraculous things in our lives, powerful workings in our life, and we go, surely that's God working in my life? And what I'm asking is, I'm not saying that wasn't God working powerfully in your life to do that miraculous thing. Maybe you kicked a really bad habit. Maybe you had this chronic habit of cheating on your spouse. 
and you killed it. And it's amazing. You became a different person. Maybe your marriage was over. And then when both of you came to Christ, or at least one of you came to Christ, such miraculous changes happened in you that the marriage was saved. That's amazing. I don't want to take anything away from the amazingness of it. What I'm saying is, do we point to those amazing things as signs that we're truly believers? And is this text going, hmm, not necessarily. That's why it's important. Maybe you have awesome things that happened in your life that are so miraculous that no one could argue with you if they were to believe you. Maybe you had a vision. Maybe you saw an angel. Maybe you heard a voice. No one else was in the car. You looked around you. No one else was around. God spoke to you. Does that mean you're saved? Maybe you were in a situation where these perfect words came to you and you said them to that person. That person said, there's no way you could have known that. That had to be God. I don't want to take that away. I'm just asking, does that mean you're a believer? Maybe you placed your hands on somebody one time, you were praying for them, and then boom, they were immediately healed. You're like, that was definitely God. The doctors are confused. I understand. I'm just asking you, is that a sign that you're a believer, or is that only a sign that God did something amazing in that particular moment? I'm hoping you feel the dilemma a little bit. Let's just say any one of those extraordinary signs, or maybe a few of those things happen to you, is that a sign of regeneration? Because uh, let me just make it clear, okay? Entire denominations of Christianity do exactly that. What is the sign that the Holy Spirit has really shown up in your life? Well, have you spoken in a tongue that nobody understands yet? Is there some external thing, some spiritual gifting that's so powerfully, miraculously obvious that no one can argue with it? We look for assurance in sort of extraordinary power signs in life oftentimes. And as I look at this passage today, of course, many other passages, but this one in particular, I I think it brings that into question. Is it possible that those are real signs God actually worked those in your life. Let's say he did those miraculous signs. He did give you that vision. That was an actual angel. That was the voice of the Lord. Let's just, for argument's sake, say those are all true. I still want to ask if those are signs of true faith. So again, here's the overview of the text, okay? Because the passage takes a lot of turns. Four pieces as we look at verses 1 through 24. Here's the first one, which is out of verse 1. Okay, the first one out of verse 1. I'm just repeating what I gave you a few minutes ago. Samuel tells Saul the purpose of his being anointed. God is really doing this, man. God is the one that's anointing you as king. Okay, that's right right off the bat in verse 1. Then in verses 1 through 12, the next chunk, here's the second piece. Samuel gives Saul three signs that are going to prove that this is the Lord's doing. Three signs, you can't argue them. They're miraculous. Isn't it amazing? This is proving that God is the one choosing Saul, right? Then the third piece and the fourth piece come out of verses 13 to 24, that Saul does not live up to standards of faith or courage or obedience, but God uses him anyway to do what God wants to accomplish for Israel. So if I'm reading this right, I'm wondering with you, is Saul an example of someone who's mightily used by God? And because of that 
first and second piece, no one can argue that God is doing this on, on Saul. There's nothing like, well, it was demonic or Saul was just tricking people. No, this was God doing it. God even proves it in miraculous signs that he's doing this powerful work in and through Saul. It even benefits others. But then the text also telling us Saul's a bad dude. He's not. That's the tension. So let's dive in and see if this is exactly what the text is getting at in 1 Samuel 10. And we'll, today we'll do 1 through 24. So here's the first piece. The first thing we see right in verse 1 is that God is establishing uh, Saul's anointing through Samuel. And that by doing that, God is truly and actually choosing Saul for God's own purposes. This isn't some made-up scenario in the mind of Samuel, not imagined by Saul or anybody else. Look at verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies." That's interesting. He's anointed. He's chosen. It's God doing it. And he's going to be a rescuer. That sounds like a pretty great <laughs> resume right off the bat. Okay, the second piece is in the rest of verse 1 and then through 12. The second piece we see is that God is going to prove this. He's going to prove it so no one can argue that God is doing this through Saul. No one can argue that God is actually the one doing this empowering. Okay? God is choosing uh, Saul, and he's going to confirm it through three signs. And these signs kind of start small, and they increase in significance. And many of us wish we had this. Would you just give me a sign? Yeah, we wish we operated like this. You just go to a prophet like this. Let's say that were me. I'd hate it. But, you know, people are forming a line during the week, and they're like, hey, would you give me a sign that this is the career choice? Okay, you're going to go to Casey's, and some guy's going to ask you for money. That's your sign. That's, that, that, that's what's happening here, just so God can confirm Saul is my guy. Okay. So these three signs are you're going to meet two people, then you're going to meet three people, then you're going to meet a whole bunch of people. All right? That, that's sort of the easiest way to kind of remember what's happening here. So he's going to meet two people, and then it's geographical locations, which is going to be important in a few minutes. And again, if you're like me, you're reading through this in your quiet time, you're like, okay, yeah, he went to these places. I don't even know where these places are, right? But when you really track with it, it's important. So he's going to meet two men at Rachel's tomb. That's the first sign. Then he's got to go to the oak at Tabor at Bethel, and he's going to meet three men carrying specific items. And one of them is going to give him specific items, very specific. And then third, so he met two men at Rachel's tomb. He's going to meet three men at oak at Tabor at Bethel. And then he's going to meet a whole group of men who are prophets, and they're going to start prophesying. And Saul, you're going to start prophesying with them that's sort of the big culminating sign wow he's prophesying he gets the gift of prophecy with these prophets and all this is God proving that these amazing things happening in Saul it is God's doing God has chosen him to do it God is the one empowering him to do it these signs are confirming that so we can't question whether it's an authentic work of God's life God's work in Saul's life so picking up in verse one and this shall be the sign Right? So it's going to be a three-part sign. This shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. 
And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? So you remember from last week, Saul set out to find his father's donkeys. He never found them. And that's how this whole story got started. Okay. So that's the first sign he's telling him. Verse three, the next sign. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Very specific. You can't miss it, right? And they will greet you. And the dude with the two loaves, he's going to give you two loaves of bread, verse 4, which you shall accept from their hand. Okay? So very specific. And that's part two that's going to happen. Now the final sign, the third one, verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim. That means hill of God, or you could say God's hill. Right, Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Real specific. Look at the instruments they're carrying. They're prophesying. It's in the place God said. I mean, you can't miss it. And just to make sure nobody misses it, verse 6, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. That sounds encouraging. So these are the instructions. You're going to see sign number one, then you're going to see sign number two. Then finally, when you see sign number three, which includes prophesying, then you're to proceed with the next set of instructions, which is verse 8. Then, after those three signs, then go down before me to Gilgal. There's a fourth location, to Gilgal. And behold, I, this is uh, Samuel talking to Saul. Behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Basically, we're going to have the coronation service and make this legit in front of everybody, right? Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, where? At Gilgal and show you what you shall do after that coronation service, right? You're going to start off as king, and then I'll tell you what to do. But for now, just show up for the service, bro, okay? It's not that hard. And along the way, if you're feeling doubtful, here's all these signs you're going to be. This part, you're going to see the two, two dudes. You're going to see three dudes. You're going to, they're carrying these specific things. You're going to meet prophets, and then you're going to even prophesy with the prophets. So after all that confirmation, you should be like, okay, God's, God's actually doing something here. Let me go to Gilgal. That's the setup. So far, so good, right? God is making it obvious that these signs are going to confirm that God is actually the one doing this, and then that's what happens. So, that this, so far, this is just what was supposed to happen. It does happen, starting in verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, just like he said he would back in verse 6, right? And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, so it's fast-forwarding to that third one, that third location, Gibeah is the hill, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. It did happen. And he prophesied among them. He did do it. Verse 11, and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, like a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Saul is so overpowered by the spirit of the Lord, it's obvious to everybody, this is a different guy, all right? It's like, what? What's come over him? That's what they're saying. Is Saul also among the prophets? It became a phrase, like saying, well, stranger things have happened. Remember Saul? 
That's basically how it became a phrase. You, when you see something you didn't expect, something that never happens, you'd be like, hmm, well, is Saul among the prophets? Like, I guess that, if that could happen, I guess that could happen. And then when somebody else says, well, con- who's their father? I'm not exactly sure what that means. It either means, yeah, and from Kish? Like, that's even crazier, which is kind of a diss on, on Saul's dad. It could be that, or it could be the other way. Well, if Samuel is his father, or maybe if Yahweh is his father, um, then that's how that's possible. So maybe it's like somebody saying, well, stranger things happen, I guess, and then somebody else going, yeah, especially if God is the one doing it. Something like that. But here's the point. The point is, Saul is one way, and everybody knows it. Then suddenly he's prophesying. And they're like, this dude never even went to the temple. He didn't even know who Samuel was a day ago. He didn't even know Samuel existed, the most famous holy man in the entire land. His servant had to think of the idea in chapter 9 to consult a man of God. It didn't even cross Saul's mind to consult a man of God or what that man of God's name even is or where he even lives. The servant had to supply all that information. And now he's prophesying, speaking on behalf of God with authority and power is definitely a miracle. Do you know people like that in your life? He was an addict and now he's clean. He was a you know, uh, an alcoholic, and now he's sober. He cheated on his wife, and now he's faithful. There's this, and then there's that. It's obviously God. Well, this text is saying it's definitely obviously God. It's not saying the person's regenerate necessarily. So here we might be thinking, I'm trying to get you in your minds to kind of argue with me a little bit, which is good. Don't just swallow everything I say up here. We might be thinking... If you're sitting there, you might be thinking, all right, look, I'm looking at this. I see a lot of positivity here, Pastor Lucas. I I know you argued last week that Saul is not a good guy. He's he's not a horrible guy, but he's just not a good guy. And now it sounds like you're doubting that he's a regenerate guy or a genuine believer. But I see positive things. You're like, look, he's being anointed in verse 1. Aren't Christians anointed? And then verse 2, three signs confirm that God is the one doing this. God is selecting him in front of everybody and, and making everybody making it clear through these miraculous signs. And then, look, he doesn't disobey those three signs. He does all three signs. He goes through with them. He goes through each of those three stations. He meets the two guys. He goes to meet the three guys. And then he goes to meet the band of guys. And then he, he prophesies among them, just like he said he would. And then, hey, look, the text even says in verse 6 that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. And that happens in verse 10. And then here's the real clincher, Pastor Lucas. I'm still speaking in your questioning voice that I'm encouraging at this particular juncture. The clincher, Pastor Lucas, is that God says, you will be turned into another man. Don't act like I didn't catch that, Pastor Lucas. Verse 6, that he will be turned into another man. You just said he's, he, he, you're questioning whether he's regenerate, and the text says God is turning him into another man, and then what does God do in verse 9? He gives him another heart. I thought you said we're a new creation when we're regenerate, and here he's getting a new heart. That sounds like a heart transplant to me. Saul must be saved. Now back to my voice. I know. <laughs> That's why I said this is a dilemma. It's obvious that God's truly working on Saul. He's truly working through Saul. That's obvious. That's a fact from the text. But there's a problem. 
Saul does amazing things, but he still acts like someone who's not at all a man of faith. He's not like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. They had flaws, but they were faithful. He's not like Moses or Joshua or Samuel that are obedient, stalwart men of the faith. He just doesn't exhibit signs that he's a true believer, and I want to show you why. Last week, I gave you seven hints from 1 Samuel 9 that he's not a good dude, and you can go back to that one if you missed it. But here, you might think, okay, that was chapter 9, but now in chapter 10, God changes him. So he must be regenerate. Well, God changes him, yes and no. (laughs) Now, let me explain why no. Let's look at the final two pieces to that scene in 13 to 24. And here we see that Saul is just plain scared. He's without faith. He's without incentive to do what he's called to do. And he tries to retreat from it, run from it. He's not faithful. He's not obedient. But God uses him anyway. So this is 13 to 24. And look at right at the top, verse, verse 13. When, when he had finished prophesying, Saul, when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Just pause there a minute. Because there's my first, there's exhibit A, that he's not regenerate, that he's not obedient, that he's not faithful, even after prophesying. Why? Well, it's really easy to miss. I missed it at first, but this isn't right. So let's go back to those instructions really quick. I know they seem boring on the surface, but it's important. He says, step number one, go to Rachel's tomb. You're going to meet two guys. Step number two, you're going to go to Oak of Tabor. You're going to meet three guys. Step number three, you're going to go to God's hill, Gibeath Elohim, and you're going to meet a band of guys, and then you're going to prophesy with them. And then after those three signs, verse eight, go down before me to Gilgal. Remember, there's a fourth location. Saul follows through with all of these signs and even prophesies, meaning, yes, God is truly working on you and through you. It's truly God doing it, Saul. And then what does he do next? Does he go to Gilgal? No, he remains unconvinced or at least without conviction, and he goes back home to Gibeah. So he doesn't follow through with the fourth step. He hangs out at the third step. Verse 13 says that the high place references the high place. And what I'm telling you is that's the same high place where he met the prophets in verse 5. The same phrase is there. So he did get to step 3. He went to Gibeah and he stayed there. It's hometown anyway. It's comfortable. That's where his family lives. So that's where he stayed. And then the text tells us he doesn't tell us that he ever went any further than that. The text does tell us where he went. He went home. He went to that particular place that is specifically not where he was supposed to end up and wait for Samuel. So the text doesn't shout it loudly. Hey, by the way, he didn't do step four. It doesn't shout it loudly. But if you follow along with the geography, you see Saul's misstep. If, we were, if these were all Chicago area places, you'd catch it. If I told you first you're going to go to these, you're going to go here, then here, then here, then here, and they're places we're familiar with, You'd be like, okay, first it's, you know, what, I, I'm going to stop at Itasca, then I'm going to go to Schomburg, and after that, Arlington Heights. Then it would be easy. You'd be like, wait, he never got to Arlington Heights or whatever, right? So I think that even though the text is not shouting it loudly, it's there on the surface for us to see. Now, let's continue with verse 14. He's home. I told you his family lives there. Here's his uncle, verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Hey, where did you go? Remember they went out looking for donkeys? That's how this whole story happened. Now they're back home. And he's like, hey, where'd you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. 
Dude, your servant said go to Samuel. Give him some credit, man. You're acting like you came up with the idea. All right, and then verse 15, Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's it? Nothing about prophesying, bro? Nothing about these miraculous signs, the dude with the two loaves? Nothing about an anointing? With the oil still on his head, he just doesn't want to talk about it. About the matter of the kingdom, the text says, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So Saul is quiet. He doesn't mention anything to his uncle about kingship or anointing or anything like that. Now, we might be like, hmm, maybe he's just being humble. Give the dude the benefit of the doubt, Pastor Lucas. If he's just being humble, I don't think so. Silence doesn't necessarily mean humility. Silence can mean humility, but it doesn't necessarily mean humility. So we can look to Jesus, right, who was uh, like a sheep before its shearers. Jesus was silent before his persecutors, right? But Jesus was silent to embrace his identity. Jesus was silent to take up his responsibility. Saul is silent because he's trying to dodge the responsibility, and that's not humility. Humility does not look like that. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. But watch how God selects Saul again in front of everyone. Everyone's watching. And then look at what Saul is doing. Starting in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And and then uh, Saul, son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And then Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. Do you see it? This tall king, head and shoulders above everyone else with his impressive stature, the one who has prophesied among the prophets, the one who has been selected by God himself, anointed by the famous and miraculously born, let's not forget uh, Samuel, he's finally up for his coronation. And where is he? He's hiding among the supplies. God even further underscores how this is truly God's choice through the casting of lots. Now you might be like, what are they casting lots? What is that? It's an ancient way of uh, divine selection, of, of determining divine selection. It's a practice called cleromancy. And it's kind of like drawing straws. You might be familiar with that. Somebody who draws the short straw, nobody knew who, which one was the short straw. It's random, right? And so they're leaving up to chance. But they didn't believe in chance. So that was their way of kind of leaving things in God's hands to see that some decision, some selection is being divinely controlled. So if there's 12 of us 
And we're wondering, man, who's going to go first? Well, nobody wants to call it. And so we each assign ourselves a number, 1 through 12, and then we roll two dice and roll it. And the number that comes up, that's who's going first. We're taking the decision out of our hands. Does that make sense? We're not doing that as a practice as a church. I'm just telling you what they did in Israel, okay? Because they didn't believe in chance and they just wanted to leave it up to God. So this is God showing nobody's suggesting Saul. I'm choosing him. And so that's how they, little by little, all the way down to his clan and all the way down to the person uh, to find him. The point being that God is the one making the selection and then everyone's ready for it except for Saul. And so, guys, his hiding is not humility any more than his silence was. Hiding is dodging responsibility. Humility is accepting responsibility and that's a big difference. Imagine it's time for the sermon and nobody knows where I am. And then somebody finds me hiding under the desk in the office. Right? Is that humility? No, that'd be me scared or lazy or unprepared or something, but not humble. So a quick aside, if the Lord is calling you to something like, let's say, I don't know, the role of elder or maybe a ministry team leader or evangelizing somebody, whatever it is, and the Lord's calling you to it, and you're like, nah, I don't want to assert myself and make others feel like I need to be heard, that might on the surface sound like humility, and it's not. If the Lord is lining you up for it, everyone else sees it, the church needs it, and you're able to do it, then that's not humility, that's hiding. Humility takes responsibility when we can recognize this is a calling and that it's not just our selfish desires. Humility takes responsibility even when we recognize perils lie ahead. And make no mistake, any ministry mantle you take up, perils lie ahead. I know I can, for example, preach a flop of a sermon. This might be one, I don't know. I always wish I could have prepared more. But you don't not do it because of that. You do it because it's your responsibility. You know you might have trouble. Who doesn't? But you don't dodge a calling because it's going to be difficult. And we don't shrink from responsibility in the name of being humble. It's not humble to hide in the baggage. It's comical. Big, tall man of stature trying to hide himself behind little people's bags. It's shameful, and it's definitely embarrassing. It's plain old disobedience. It's a a passive-aggressive disobedience, like a wimpy kind. It could have been more flagrant. He could have gone into hiding back when he was supposed to go to Rachel's tomb. He could have just hid then. He could have hid behind Rachel's tomb and not taken the second step. He could have bailed when he saw the prophets coming with all their instruments and just run away then. But he's probably too scared to do that too. In the final moment, all he can think to do is scooch himself underneath a bunch of bags while the ceremony is taking place, and it's just embarrassing. And don't miss the thick irony in verse 24. Look at verse 24. You see who the Lord has chosen? This guy you wanted. Isn't that right? There's no one like him, is there, guys? A baggage hider. Verse 18. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Israel, I I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities, your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord and by your tribes and by your thousands. That's God saying, I have provided for you. I've done all these things for you. You guys still want someone else like the nations. You want someone like the nations? The nations cower before me. The nations are cowards. Here's your guy. Well, 
Lord, where, where is he? Oh, he's in the bags. So then Samuel brings him out. This is not the first, this is, this is not the last time Samuel's going to be frustrated. It seems like it to me, but Samuel has to go dig him out of luggage claim and bring him out and say, here's your guy. And then how does Israel respond? Oh, yeah, I guess this is stupid. Long live the king! Look how tall he is. This doesn't look good for Israel, and it doesn't look good for Saul. So I hope you see what I'm saying. The text doesn't present Saul in a positive light. It only presents God in a positive light. And here's a guy who doesn't follow through, who doesn't listen. He won't talk about it, and he ends up hiding. But here's God using the spirit to take over, to empower him to do particular things like prophesy. And when he does so, he changes his heart to do it. So how can both be true? Back to the dilemma. I think it's true because, and I here is the main point, I think. The spirit of God working in and through a man does not a regenerate man make. Put another way. The Lord can work in and through someone powerfully by the Holy Spirit, and that does not necessarily mean that the person is a true believer. He could be a true believer, but powerful workings of the Spirit are not a sure sign. It's kind of like, I hope this works, I almost deleted it, but we'll try it. (laughs) But it's kind of like if somebody said, hey, the true sign of a great cook is that they can produce a great meal. Hmm. The true sign of a great cook is that they can produce a great meal. But you might respond, well, Sure, great cooks can produce great meals, but I know some people who are not great cooks, they wouldn't even call themselves great cooks, but there's like one dish that they really nail. They bring it every Thanksgiving. Everybody wants it. It's the one dish that they can make. That doesn't mean it's a great cook. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's some people that maybe he would even tell you I'm not a great cook because it's not inside them. They don't love it. They don't study it. They don't consistently produce good meals. They're not even totally sure why that one dish particularly works. So we, you know, could we say all great cooks produce great meals? Yes. Does that logically infer that all great meals come from great cooks? No. Similarly, Do all believers show some signs of extraordinary power? Probably, in some way or another. Everyone's testimony is a a testimony of some change in power. Some may be more obvious and dynamic than others, but does the presence of extraordinary change in someone's life or displays of extraordinary power in someone's life mean they're a believer? No. I'm saying if you reverse it, it it, it doesn't mean that it's true. So the point is that Christians can be empowered in amazing, even miraculous ways by the Spirit of the Lord, but some people are empowered by the Spirit and not necessarily Christian. I just want to take a few minutes as quickly as I can to try to explain that, because I know it's a heavy claim. Here, we have evidence that God is at work in Saul, and they're predicted all in verse 6. If you just look at verse 6, circle that, there's the predictions. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon him. God is going to make him prophesy. God's going to turn him into another man, and then it happens in verse 9 and 10. God does give him another heart. The Spirit does rush upon him, and he does prophesy. So those are the big signs that we have to contend with. They're all connected. God gives him another heart, which is the same as making him another man. And how did he do that? He did that by the Spirit rushing upon him. And how do we know that the Spirit rushed upon him? The evidence was prophecy. Now, we're told he prophesied We're not told what he prophesied because I don't think that's the point. It was probably about mustering the people up, courage to to do battle with their enemies, which 
is the purpose of the king in the first place. But the point is that God did make a change in him by the Holy Spirit to do something he couldn't have done without God's action. That's true. God does do these things. He predicted it in verse 6. He did it in verse 9 and 10, and it's obvious. Now, it's easy to take these as sort of Christian terms that mean generation. Another heart? Prophecy? That's a spiritual gift. Hey. But notice the text does not say Saul was given a new heart. It says literally his heart was overturned. So just get a little geeky for a second, but this is where it's helpful to compare translations. If you look at the NIV, the CSB, the NASB, it says God changed Saul's heart, not given another heart. Hmm, that's closer. God did something to it. He changed it, but he didn't swap it out. It's not pull out the heart of stone, put it in a heart of flesh. None of that stuff. That's not what it says. It says God overturned it. I don't want to press this too hard, but it seems important to me. The word for change in the Hebrew is hafak. So I had to look it up. I'm not a Hebrew expert. I'm looking it up. And it's usually translated turn. But there's always like 95% of the time it's translated turn. And then you're supplied with these, you know, these resources that I use with how else is it used in other places where they don't say turn, but it means something a little different. And when you look at the other places, that root hafak is used to form other words. Listen to these other words. They're all negative. Perversion, opposite, crooked, destruction, or even stocks, like when you bind the prisoner and put them in stocks. Those are not positive things. Those are negative things. And so it's like when a city is overthrown. Saul's heart was overthrown. That's another way that hafak is used, to overthrow So God overturning it doesn't mean he gave him a soft heart. He gave him humility because then you would see humility in his life. He gave him a heart of courage. No, he didn't because he's hiding in the bags. So even if we didn't know the Hebrew, we see this happening in the text. The moment the spirit is rushing upon, the moment, the moment the spirit is not rushing upon him, Saul reverts to what his heart wants to do. Retreat, shirk responsibility and hide. You see that? The moment the spirit is not outwardly, externally overturning and overthrowing what his heart wants to do, as soon as the spirit stops doing that, he reverts back to what he wants to do. That's not a changed heart. That's a heart that is being controlled momentarily by God. So here, when God makes him another man, it doesn't mean born again. It means that God takes over, makes him do things that he wouldn't do otherwise, so that people see him and go, who is this guy? That doesn't mean he's reborn. It means that he's being overturned in those moments by God. Now, we might think that powerful displays of God's power are only for believers, but this is just not true in Scripture. Give me another six or seven minutes to drive this home. I think it's really important. I want you guys talking about this, thinking about this. Powerful, miraculous displays in someone's life are not signs that they're necessarily believers because they're not only for believers. So just a couple quick proofs. Do you remember back when we preached, when I preached through numbers? You remember when Balaam was paid to prophesy or to uh, curse Israel? He's not a believer. I haven't found anybody that argues Balaam is any kind of regenerate. He's a mercenary for hire, a diviner who would, would, for money, curse an entire nation. And then God commandeers Balaam And what comes out of Balaam's mouth is a blessing. Oops, 
And the king is like, man, that's not what I paid you to do. He's like, I, I, I don't know. He was overturned. And just to make it clear that God could do whatever he wants with whatever heart he wants, he speaks to Balaam through a donkey. Is the donkey regenerate? No, God could do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants for his purposes. And it's miraculous and it's amazing. It doesn't mean Balaam or the donkey are regenerate. We'll put this on the screen for you so you don't have to turn there, but I just want you to see um, what I'm referencing in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It's a sobering verse. I bring you up many times. I've brought it up many times here, but Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says Lord is going to make it, he's saying, but only those who actually do the will of my Father. Verse 22, 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name? Uh Uh-oh. Isn't that a sign? We prophesied. We weren't making it up. It's a gift. We prophesy your name. We cast out demons in your name. Remember, Jesus said, demons don't cast out demons. That's just dumb. So it's not demonic, but it is powerful. And we did many mighty works. You think that means that they kind of showed up to church? They had a good church attendance? I think by mighty works, they're saying like prophecy and like exorcisms, things that clearly that's the work of God. How can we not make it into heaven? And then Jesus says in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I find it very fascinating that Jesus doesn't say, you say you prophesied? No, you didn't. You say you cast out demons? No, you didn't. You say you did mighty works, but no, you didn't. It's like Jesus grants that and is basically saying, mighty works, powerful displays, extraordinary signs, even if it is truly miraculous and given by God does not mean that you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You remained in sin and you enjoyed those miraculous things for other reasons. But it doesn't mean you were saved. Now, do well, are the apostles going to prophesy? Are the true apostles going to cast out demons? Do true disciples, like in the book of Acts, do they do mighty works? Yes. It's, I don't want you to leave and go to lunch going, I guess we should just be mundane people and, exp- and, and hope that God never does anything extraordinary in my life. I guess my amazing testimony is a big piece of trash is what Lucas is saying. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when someone asks you if you're a Christian, don't pin it on the miracles. Unregenerate people experience miracles too sometimes. So we can go on, but it's clear that powerful works, even ones that can be attributed to God, don't necessarily mean we're saved. You might have been blessed by the ministry of a gifted pastor who preached powerful sermons and then you find out he was unregenerate and you're tempted to think, what about all those powerful sermons that I felt blessed by? Well, they may have been the power of God, but our mistake is to confuse that with salvation. The point of this passage is that God is raising up a king despite the fact that they wanted a godless king like the nations, uh, despite the fact that Saul is not a spiritual man, and this goes to show that we're not to confuse power with salvation. And it's also pointing to the answer. What we need is not a king whose heart has to be forced. We need a king whose heart is perfect and who has the power to perfect our hearts as well. This is why only Jesus was able to promise that he would send the spirit not to rush upon true believers, but rebirth them and indwell them and have the real heart change, 
Not overthrown, but reborn. Does that mean Christians are empowered to do things? Well, of course it does, but it's not a sign of salvation. You might go, well, what is a sign of salvation then? Here's two easy ones. Repentance and obedience when it counts. From this narrative, repentance is sorely missing from Saul's life. We don't see him repenting for not showing up at Gilgal. We don't see him repenting for hiding. We don't see him truly repent even later for bigger sins that we're going to see as we keep going through 1 Samuel in the series. He doesn't repent for those either. It's just not a factor in his life. But Jesus came on the scene preaching the gospel saying, repent and believe. He taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts. That's the language of a Christian. Repentance, confession. That's what we were just doing in the taking of the elements. We don't just take it and go, yeah, I'm glad God did this for other people. It's confession. Repentance is core to the life of the Christian. Does it really matter if you can speak in tongues and you don't exhibit humble repentance? What about these pastors with powerful preaching ministries who get embroiled in some scandal? Do you often hear those guys coming out with public repentance that was as public as their ministry? I don't see it. Power is flashy. And there might even be signs God is using them in a moment, but it doesn't mean regeneration. So repentance, and what's the other one I want you to cling to? Obedience when it counts. I say when it counts because everyone obeys when it's convenient. Everybody does that. But what about in those moments when there's pressure, when there's high stakes? Saul hid. What do we do? Regenerate people aren't perfect people. We make mistakes. But Saul's life is a profile and never getting it right except for when the Spirit controlled him to do so. Christians aren't controlled by the Spirit. We're indwelled by the Spirit. And that shows up in faithful fruit in your life. On the whole, we listen to what God says and we do it, even if it hurts to do it, even if it's scary to do it. First John reminds us, here's how we know we've come to know him. First John 2, 3. You know how you've come to know him? You keep his commandments, that's how. First John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's saying, we sin, but someone really born of God doesn't just keep doing it, like who cares? Right? You're, you're changed. He cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. John says there's more here to connect to but I want to wrap it up here Um, it would be interesting in your growth groups or in other venues Uh, I think we're coming up on break now but uh, if you unpack those warning passages in Hebrews that confuse people when all those passages in Hebrews say hey you've tasted the Holy Spirit but actually you've proven that you're not a believer and people are like oh I guess you could lose your salvation no Saul's tasting the Holy Spirit here There's some goodness that's happening to Saul, but it's not the miraculous external things. It's not the changes that you experience in your life necessarily. Those are great. We do need a change. But when someone asks you, hey, are you a believer? Don't pin your testimony on miracles. Let those come later. What do you pin your testimony on? Repentance. And that true conversion looks like increased obedience in your life. You love your Savior King. So church family, there's no need to fret or to fear. This sermon is not to scare you. Um, Don't place your trust in power or signs or miraculous things. Even if they're of the Lord, they're not true signs of faith. So trust in what? Trust in whom? Christ. Trust in Christ through faith and repentance, proven in obedience. He is your faithful king. He will never hide from his responsibility to lead you. And one day when he returns... 
we will truly behold him and say, long live the king. Let's pray.